it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I always look forward to uh, contact with students. I don't have regular contact with students much anymore. My kids are off doing various things. Um, I taught at Purdue, as he said, uh, many years ago. Uh, there's a certain resemblance between West Virginia and, and uh, Purdue, uh, both schools with enrollments over 30,000, both schools that until recently uh, had failed to advance to the Final Four with any frequency uh, that was commensurate with expectations. Uh, I, noted, I, I note that West Virginia broke out of that category uh, this year with great success. Now, you'll know that I'm the president of the Richmond Fed, and our district, our, our Federal Reserve District, extends from Maryland down to South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, D.C., and most of West Virginia, everything but the northern panhandle. So I have a large number of ac academic institutions in my district, and us being a nonpartisan uh, institution, I feel compelled to avoid public statements of support for anyone institution or their sports endeavors, but um, I'll, I'll just note that of the teams in the Final Four, this is the only university I've visited in person ever, and I've been here three times, unlike other institutions in my Federal, Fifth Federal Reserve District. So if that gives you a hint as to my allegiance uh, in the Final Four, um, so be it, so be it. I'm happy to give that uh, uh, a little signal of uh, my uh, predilections. So what I want to talk about today is, is um, the title is Economics, Policy, and Politics. Now, I understand a lot of you are economics or financial economics students. Am I right? How many of you are economics majors or financial economics majors? Something like that? All right. That's a good point. Good. Good. How many of you are taking an economics or business or accounting related course? All right. Fair, fair amount. All right. So this is a group that has some interest, some knowledge of, some understanding for the most part of economics. So we just come through an amazing financial crisis, completely unanticipated, huge in scale and scope, far more consequential, far more disruptive than anything people had thought would happen. And I read a lot about the crisis. Um, I think a lot about the crisis. Um, but this noteworthy thing that I've, I've discovered in the popular press is that it's, it's often interpreted as um, a problem for economics, uh, that uh, the claims made that this financial crisis is, is really, really should lead to some crisis in economics, that it really represented a failure of economics. And people often uh, embody this this insight into uh, the note in the in the question, why didn't economists foresee this financial crisis? So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna attack that notion for you today. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and demolish that demotion, uh, notion. First of all, I think this is entirely unfair. Compare, for example, economists to seismologists. So seismologists know and have told us that there will be earthquakes. But can they tell you exactly the day and time of the Chile earthquake, the one in China last night? No. Do people say that's a crisis in seismology? No, I don't think so. So holding us accountable for predicting the exact time and, and nature of this financial crisis I think is too high a standard. Having said that, though, I'm, what I want to do for you is describe the the 
uh, economists describe the contributions that have been made going back to the late 70s that um, I think uh, foretold the general nature of the problems we saw. So I'm going to go through a list of papers. Uh, you can probably look them up on the web uh, if you take notes. Um, and, and if you didn't get good notes, just email me later. I'll, I'll give you the citations. These are, these are papers by economists, um, many of them affiliated with uh, Federal Reserve Banks. Uh, we each have economic research functions of our own to do our own independent analysis. Uh, there's some 300 economists working for the Federal Reserve System. Uh, and, uh, you know, a broad array of support staff, research assistants and the like, undergrad econ majors and the like. Um, and so a lot of these contributions emanated from the Federal Reserve System, but not all of them. So the first one I'll point to uh, was a paper in 1977 uh, by two economists uh, affiliated with the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis at the time. A lot of these contributions come from Minneapolis. Uh, names of the authors were John Karakin and Neil Wallace. It's K-A-R-A-K-E-N and Neil Wallace. And it was about deposit insurance. So at the time, you know, now, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insures the deposits of commercial banks. Uh, we had a similar system for savings and loans. We have a similar system for credit union accounts. They pointed out the moral hazard problem, essentially, that, uh, that it gives rise to, that uh, a, a bank uh, that has deposit insurance uh, will have an incentive to take on more risk than a bank that doesn't have deposit insurance. And it's easy to think of this in terms of the incentives of the shareholders of the bank, but an important ingredient there in their story is, well, what are the, what are the incentives of the other uh, investors in the bank? So what about the insured creditors, the depositors? Well, in an uninsured institution, the depositors would have an incentive to um, impose a little bit of discipline, to check on the bank, monitor what they're doing. And with, insured, with deposit insurance, that incentive is blunted. So whenever, so it's not just the shareholders where moral hazard is a problem. A big piece of it is creditors. That if if your investment that you've lent money, you have a uh, you you have some debt outstanding to an entity. If if that debt is guaranteed by some third party, you don't have quite the incentive to impose conditions on the person you're bar you're lending to, to ensure that they don't take risks that disadvantage you unfairly or too much. 1983, John Kerrigan again wrote a, an article, a famous article, The Cart Before the Horse. So in 1980 and in 1982, Congress passed legislation significantly relaxing regulations on banks and then in 82 on savings and loan institutions, thrift institutions. And in, of note, in, for savings and loan institutions, they expanded the range of um, – lending they could do. Before that, savings and loans were restricted to pretty much mortgages, home mortgages. After that, they were allowed to get into business lending, to commercial real estate, other types of business lending. And the result is that they ran amok. And this, this article in 83 was a prescient warning of just what was to happen over the course of the 80s, uh, in, come to be known as the savings and loan debacle. Uh, huge losses in the savings loan resulting from excessive risk-taking. His point was, well, if you have 
a system, you're running a system where you're insuring their liabilities, and then you're going to relax the constraints on their risk-taking, you got to be really careful. you got to be really careful about that. You know, you need to make sure that you're going to be able to contain their risk-taking to reasonable magnitudes. Also, in 1983, a very important article, extremely influential. You may have heard of it already, uh, by Doug Diamond and Phil Dibvig. Um, and it's about bank runs. So it points out this sort of dynamic, and it, it, it was basically an intuitive notion, but they were able to f- formalize it, and that formalization was very useful, as I'll explain. Um, but they, they r- really spelled out carefully and clearly uh, this notion of... Um, I'll call it multiple equilibrium. So you know what an equilibrium is, right? Supply equals demand. So um, the parable goes like this. A bunch of depositors put their money in a bank uh, or a bunch of banks. And um, what's that contract? What does that look like? What have they agreed to? So what are the terms of this agreement? Well, it says that um, they do this under the following provisions. None of the depositors know which one of them is going to want their money early rather than later. So you put your money in your bank. You're going to go shopping for the next 10 days. You don't know when you're going to want, you're going to find a a pair of great blue jeans. So if you don't find blue jeans, you're going to leave your money there. If you find blue jeans, you're going to buy, you're going to buy some blue jeans. So, um, but what everyone knows is that a certain fraction of the depositors will find some blue jeans they like and want their money out. Say, you know, 10, 20% of them are going to want their money out. So the bank invests in some long-term assets to get that higher rate of return that you get when you lock up your money, but then they put a little bit aside to meet the demands of the 10 to 20% of the students that have deposited in their bank that they know are going to find some blue jeans they like in the next week. So they have that money there to meet the withdrawal demands of those early withdrawers. Well, so what happens um, everything works out fine, except if some of the people who don't find blue jeans, what if they have the thought? What if the thought crosses their mind, hey, if everyone goes to get their money out, the bank isn't going to have the money there. They're not going to have enough liquid resources. They're going to have this long-term asset that they're going to have to sell at a loss. If I, if I wait and leave my money in there, but everyone else goes to get their money out, I'm going to be nailed. I'm going to be screwed. So they have to guess, is everyone else going to take their money out? So this multiple equilibrium problem is this. If you're shopping and you don't think everyone else is going to take their money out and get scared, you're going to leave your money in because you're going to make more money that way. But if you you do think everyone else is going to panic and take their money out, it makes sense for you to do it too. So that's a canonical model, just an archetypal model of this fragility, inherent fragility in financial markets. Tremendously important, tremendously influential contribution. So they, they, they really formalized this idea that if, if a financial institution ha- issues liabilities that are demandable, they're, they're liquid in the sense that you, people can get their money out pretty quickly if they want to, um, but invest in longer-term assets that aren't liquid, they're leaving themselves vulnerable to this problem that – Everyone could want their money out at once, and it could be a logical thing for everyone to try to get their money out to try and beat everyone else trying to get their money out. So they, 
they pinpointed this this fragility and it's it's in the, in the nature of maturity transformation. You may have heard this in the course as well. Borrowing short, borrowing in a liquid form and investing in long-term assets. Now there's a there's been a huge literature after this. And I, I talked about the formalization of this notion. They wrote down an artificial economy. They, they wrote down, uh, here are the people in this economy. Here are, the ass- here are the endowments they have. Here's the physical stuff they have. Here are the trading opportunities available to them. This is what a bank has available to it. They wrote down the preferences that people had the uncertainty they face is they wrote down everything about the technology of their environment. This is a, a world you could put on a computer. And they s- said, well, let's – they use paper and pencil instead, but they said, well, let's ha- see what people do in this world. And you can – by doing that, you can study just how what people do varies with elements of the environment. So one, um, one aspect of their model is this deal that the depositors have with the bank – and it's that I put $100 in today, and if I want $100 in a week and I go to the bank, I can get $100 back if they have the $100. But there's, there's alternatives available to people. So if you really look at the environment in this artificial world, there's alternatives available. So you could have it be this way, right? Why doesn't the bank say this? All right, you get $100 if only 20% of the depositors, only 20% of the students want their money out. But if 21% want their money out, you don't get $100. You get less, say $80, or you get the ability to wait and get your $100 out in a couple of months. So if you're late, you don't get a full payment. That turns out to be exceptionally important in their story. And that might sound silly because it doesn't sound like a bank deposit you've ever heard about. But the, the point here that we've uncovered with the research we've done since then on this environment that, that Doug Diamond and Phil Dibvig explored for us, what we've learned by, with subsequent authors is, and researchers is that it's very sensitive to assumptions about what kind of deposit contracts, what kind of lending arrangements a depositor and a bank can have. You know, How do the future payoffs vary with the state of the world in the future? And so I, I take away from this a broader point that any, any banking institution well, – let me back up. An important conclusion that's emerged from that research is that if you do this – I mean, think about this. If, if, if 21% go to the bank to get their money, so there's a panic on, right? You know somebody's panicking if too many people are showing up at the bank. You, won't, you get $80 instead of 100 that, that can break this cycle of panic because everyone realizes, well, no one else is going to go because a lot of them are going to get $80 instead of 100 rather than going and later getting 100 So it breaks that in, it breaks that other equilibrium and the only equilibrium you get is one where people do stay in and they don't panic because they know if they do go try and get their money, they're, they're just going to disadvantage themselves. So what I take away from that is that uh, vulnerability of a financial institution to the kind of panic-driven run that can bring an institution down even if it's solvent, that vulnerability is a matter of choice. They have tools 
at their disposal. They don't have to issue perfectly liquid liabilities. They can issue liquid liabilities that have some contingencies in them that protect against these sorts of runs. And I don't have time to go into this, but in financial markets, you can see examples of this type of contracting. This research, I should note, um, has been this research stream of building on Diamond and Dipvig's uh, insights has been carried out um, by Neil Wallace, who's done some important work, a man named Ed Green, who's now at Penn State, uh, just up the mountain chain here, uh, has made important contributions, and an economist at the Richmond Fed together with another economist at the New York Fed um, have also made important contributions. The one at the Richmond Fed is named Huberto Ennis, an Argentinian who uh, works for us in the research department. And um, Todd Keister is the name of the man at the New York Fed who's done work on this. So now I'll mention a real blockbuster of a contribution. It's a book. And it was published in 2004 originally. A new edition has been issued by Brookings uh, Institution Press. Um, the book is called Too Big to Fail. Now, don't confuse this with the big red book called Too Big to Fail that's about this crisis. This book is also about this crisis, but it was written before the crisis. So it didn't know exactly what the crisis was going to look like. The book was written by two people at the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, one was their president, my counterpart in Minneapolis, a guy named Gary Stern, an uh, excellent economist um, and um, excellent policymaker. And another was a colleague of his, Ron Feldman, who's in charge of bank supervision there. They laid out this problem called too big to fail. And wh where does that phrase come from? 1984, after Continental Illinois failed, a holding company that owned a big bank, and the federal government stepped in and gave them support that Continental Illinois was not legally required to get. We stepped in and gave them extra support uh, to guarantee the, the uninsured liabilities of the holding company of the bank. After that, um, the comptroller of the currency testified that indeed the top uh, 17, I think it was, banks are uh, probably too big for the government to let them fail. Now, what he meant by that and why is open to debate, and I'll return to that subject in a minute. So this has come to be called the too-big-to-fail problem, the problem that big institutions are perceived by market participants, especially creditors, investors, as too large to, uh, for the government to let them uh, go under uh, and have creditors take a loss. The, so the view is that the government's going to step in and protect the creditors, the debt holders of institutions like that. So Gary Stern and Ron Feldman pointed out in 2004 that this is a huge problem. Uh, this is an immense problem because of the distortion to risk-taking by these large financial institutions, institutions like J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, Bank of America, you know, even the investment banks at the time were viewed as too big to fail before this crisis. And then another of my co former colleagues, William Poole, uh, president of the St. Louis Fed, began eight, ten years ago, I think longer even, campaigning about the dangers, talking publicly about the dangers of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac the two housing, finance, government-sponsored enterprises. So these are entities that were 
given formal charters, special charters by Congress, one in the 30s, the other in the 60s. They bought mortgages from banks, packaged them into pools of securities, provided a guarantee on those securities, and issued the securities, sold the securities in the private market. And in addition, bought mortgage-backed securities themselves for their own portfolio. So they were tremendously important to the housing market. They had no formal legal backing from the U.S. government. And yet, investors widely believed that they were uh, too big to fail in the sense that Congress would not let creditors absorb losses in these institutions. And that turned out to be the case. Congress indeed in 2008 passed a law that entitled, uh, that authorized the Treasury to come to the aid. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been more expensive than anything else in this crisis. Over $100 billion and still there's more losses to come for U.S. taxpayers. Um, they were able to borrow at much lower interest rates than other competitors in the mortgage securitization market because they were perceived to be too big to fail. And that gap is estimated to have been three-quarters of a percentage point, 75 basis points. And in these markets, with the spreads we're talking about, that was a huge, fairly insurmountable advantage. So they were able to corner this market by benefiting from low, you know, lower cost of funding than everyone else because everyone believed that Congress would step in and use taxpayer money uh, to fund them and to protect their creditors should they fail. But Congress, in addition, uh, encouraged them to do more for low-income housing, to do more for low-income mortgage borrowers. And in response to that, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac deliberately started buying mortgage-backed securities that they did not that they issued, but that were issued by the private sector, that were backed by subprime mortgages, and they became a huge portion of the market for subprime mortgages in these critical years, 2003, four, and five, in which the subprime problem ramped up. So Bill Poole was warning about the dangers of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac back then. So this too big to fail problem, how big is it? Well, in 2002, two economists at the Richmond Fed published a paper that asked exactly that question. How large is the federal financial safety net? How large is the set of institutions that benefit from explicit or implicit government support? And the answer was a lot. 45% as of 1999 of the liabilities of the financial sector enjoyed explicit or implicit government support. So this consisted mostly of of deposit insurance, uh, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which guarantees private sector pensions. Um, Those are the main parts of the explicit safety net. And then the implicit safety net was largely Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the uninsured liabilities of those banks that were viewed as too big to fail. 45% 45% in 1999. Well, two economists at the Richmond Fed have re-examined these figures in light of the precedents that we set, in two, that the government set in 2008, uh, because the government has supported institutions that they viewed as not part of the safety net back then, and so that set a new precedent. 
So using conservative assumptions, again, um, John Walter, uh, who was one of the first co-authors, uh, the first study was John Walter and John Weinberg. John Weinberg is the director of research in Richmond. John Walter is an economist in the research department. So um, this year we published a working paper. It's on our website. should be a link on the front page um, by John Walter and Nadezhda Malasheva, uh, research assistant with us, um, about how big the safety net is now. And it's gone from 45% to 59% of financial sector liabilities. How did we get here? Any talking fed, heads fans out there? Talking heads? Anyone? You guys are young. <laughs> Showing my age. So how did we get here in the words of uh, the famous uh, talking heads song? So it has to do with ambiguity. It has to do with lack of clarity. So I want you to put yourself in the position of Tim Geithner at the New York Fed. Imagine you're the president of the New York Fed and um, or any uh, or the head of any Federal Reserve Bank with a large financial institution in their district. So we have Bank of America. We had Wachovia, for example. Um, it's a situation I could have faced. And you've got a financial institution that's in trouble. Now, this is a financial institution that the private sector – views as potentially too big to fail. Private sector investors are attaching some significant probability to the eventuality that the, it fails and the government steps in to protect, protect creditors. That probability is influencing their decisions. They're willing to stay with this company with very liquid liabilities. They're willing to hang in there and keep lending to them on a short-term basis if they think that probability is high enough. But if the probability sinks, they're going to pull their money out. So there's this financial institution. But undoubtedly, there are similar financial institutions that are kind of the same class of institution, the same size maybe. So, for example, think about the investment banks. You had, you know, in the spring of 2008, you had Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, uh, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, right? So one of them, it gets in trouble. If you do not support them, investors are going to surmise that you will not support a similar institution. So you're on the horns of a dilemma here. Do you, do you protect the creditors of an investment bank or not? If you don't, well, those creditors are going to take a hit in that institution. It's going to file for bankruptcy on Sunday night. But what about the other investment banks? What about other similar institutions? Investors are always judging, you know, sort of the relative risk of these, but they sort of move as a class up and down in investors' eyes. What are they, what are, what's going to happen to Lehman if you let Bear Stearns go down? Well, you know, the inevitable risk you run is that investors calculate the government did not support Bear. They're not going to support Lehman. I'm pulling out of Lehman now. That's the ambiguity, and that's the terrible dilemma that this ambiguity creates for policymakers. So they end up resolving, they end up inevitably drawn to resolving the uncertainty in the direction of support rather than not. And that's what leads this, this safety net to expand year after year. There are these little incidents. You can go back to the 70s and look at them. Franklin National Bank, savings and loan institutions. Continental Illinois, um, you know, and, and LTCME, on and on. And there's this, 
this dilemma. Every policymakers know quite well that supporting an institution exacerbates moral hazard, that it dampens the incentives of creditors to limit risk taking by the firms they're lending to. But they're inevitably drawn towards this when there's this ambiguity, when a lot of financial investments have been made predicated on the likelihood of government support, to disappoint that expectation all of a sudden is always going to be catastrophic, is always going to be dangerous. I shouldn't say catastrophic. Uh, it'll be disruptive, let's put it that way. That's how we got here. Now, after the fact, you can see, you know, regulators see that, yeah, yeah, this was a, a problem. We should have regulated that risk. So they regulate the risks that led to the last crisis, mortgage-backed securities, credit default swaps. But inevitably, there's an incentive to bypass that new regulation. Risk-taking arises just outside the regulated zone. That risk-taking leads to another crisis. Inevitably, there's a downturn. Inevitably, someone, one of the institutions engaged in that gets it wrong. Inevitably, policymakers are imposed, are, are, are faced with this dilemma again. That's, that's how this cycle continues again and again, and, and too big to fail expands. We've got to stop this, I believe. So now I'm going to talk about policy. Um, well, first let me just conclude about economists. So what I've, let me just point out here that economists have pointed out this dynamic, this cycle I just talked about. Um, a colleague of mine, Marvin Goodfriend, wrote about that in a paper in 1999. And I was a co-author on that. So this is something that, so going back three decades, economists have been talking about the dangers of the way the government interacts with the financial sector and the moral hazard problem it gives rise to, the lack of clarity about the safety net. The answer, I think, seems clear, that we need clarity around where the safety net is and where it isn't. And we need the ability to commit, the willingness to commit to let firms that are not in the safety net fail to demonstrate you know, our commitment to a bounded and limited safety net. Because otherwise, we're just eroding market discipline. We're eroding the, the incentives that undergird a competitive market economy, that discipline risk-taking, that um, disincent making huge mistakes uh, in risk management and investments. And um, things are uncertain. It's hard to predict in advance. Uh, but these competitive forces, this market discipline, is what gives people incentive to do as much homework as they can up front on their investments and structure them soundly. So I think we need clear boundaries. Now, there's two, federal, there's two bills before Congress. One passed the House on financial regulatory reform. Another is being considered by the Senate on the floor as we speak. Um, and um, I think neither bill fits this description of establishing clear boundaries. Now, they both say all the right things about the intention, the desire to have uninsured creditors bear losses in the event that a large financial institution uh, that's viewed as systemically important fails and has to be liquidated. But they at the same time provide tools to the government that they can use at their discretion to soften the blow to creditors. So the provisions are that there's a new resolution regime. So a large financial institution that's systemically important will be seized by the government and liquidated. But 
they have $50 billion that they can use to buy the assets of the failing firm, guarantee the buy the liabilities of the failing firm, guarantee the liabilities of the failing firm. They can treat similarly situated creditors differently. They have tremendous discretion to soften the blow to creditors, and they aren't required to make creditors bear all the losses. That, to me, just sets up this dynamic, just perpetuates this dynamic that, that gave us too big to fail to begin with, and so I think it would be a mistake. A little bit about politics. Uh, so the politics of, of banking have been excruciating for the last couple of years. Uh, but this is a theme in American political life. Are there political science students in the audience? Raise your hand. So you folks know about Hamilton and Jefferson. Uh, you know about uh, William Jennings Bryan, the Cross of Gold. Huge debates in our nation's history about the nature, nature of the government's relationship to the financial system and our monetary systems. And the latent... Uh, Distrust of large financial institutions is, has been a constant in American political life. Um, and occasionally, um, at times like this, um, out of a very understandable rage at how things have gone, uh, emerges as a very potent political force. And I think that's with us uh, today and motivating a desire to lash out and really crack down on large financial institutions and really crack down on the regulators as well. I'm all for constructive change, and we in the Federal Reserve System have been working very hard on this in the last year and a half, uh, extracting lessons learned. We've done a lot already to toughen up our regulation on the largest firms, and we're doing even more going forward, reorganizing how we, how we oversee the largest banks making sure we, we've got enough resources devoted to surveillance of the markets that these guys interact in so we understand the dangers that are emerging um, in real time, and uh, we have the fortitude uh, to push back and crack down where we need to. All useful reforms we're engaged in already, and there are some useful reforms in some of these bills. Uh, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the credibility, the willingness of policymakers in the government to crack down and allow a big institution to fail. And here I'll point out, I'll point to the, this might look impossible, but I'll point to um, two things. First, I'll point to Lehman Brothers, which, you know, obviously a lot of firms have taken losses in that, but no firms have directly failed as a result of that, with the exception of one money market mutual fund uh, who's been, um, who was engaged in fraud essentially misrepresenting their portfolio. And um, moreover, I'd point out that you know, the bulk of their assets, their operations, were sold within five days out of bankruptcy. So if you look at the direct effects of Lehman as opposed to the effects on the entire investor climate, uh, broader perspectives, the policy response, as opposed to all the other train of events that occurred after that, if you look at the direct impact of Lehman, it was smaller than anticipated, I, th I think I'd argue. Look, too, at, at hedge funds. Now, hedge funds are sort of viewed as evil and beyond the pale by many. They're important players in, in providing liquidity to a lot of markets. It takes a difference of opinion to make horse races, and so the more difference of opinions you have, that can help market functioning. 
no hedge funds failed in a way that was viewed as disruptive to the market. And because they were viewed as beyond the pale, I'd assert that they probably were viewed as unlikely, if ever, to gain the benefit of government support. So what did they do when markets got rocky in 2007? They shifted to illiquid liabilities, not liquid liabilities. So they put in restrictions on the ability of their investors to get their money out quickly. In contrast, large investment banks, some of them continued to borrow huge amounts of money on the overnight repurchase agreement market. So I think there's a, a good case that could be good evidence, we need to do more research into this, of the effect of market discipline, the ability of market discipline to provide the incentive to financial market participants to limit a firm's vulnerability to the kind of run-like behavior that uh, Doug Diamond and Phil Dibvig identified in 1983 for us. So that's my helicopter tour of economics, uh, the economics policy and politics of financial regulatory reform and the, relation, the government's relationship to the financial system. Um, I hope to have convinced you not to give up on economics, if you ever did. Hoping you didn't. Um, give it a chance. It is uh, for understanding the way our world works and the way policy interacts with the private sector. It is the only game in town. And our only hope is to push the frontiers of our understanding forward. There are abundant, fascinating research problems, important research problems. Um, I understand carbon sequestration is an important priority and uh, CO2 and climate change and everything, but we need good economic policy as well. And I hope that the economics profession and the endeavor of attempting to improve our, our country's understanding of the economic policy options in front of us and their effects gets its fair share of the outstanding human capital uh, that is uh, coming to maturity uh, in this day and age. So I thank you for your time and patience, and I'd be happy to answer quest any questions you have. Thank you very much. What do you think? Who wants to answer a question? Who wants a question? Anybody? Oh, right here. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. So you know what you ought to do? I don't know if you've – have you looked at the history of the 19th century, early 19th century? Okay. So um, in the early 19th century, we had a lot of experience with states defaulting on their debt. They were issuing bonds in London, which was the New York of its time – well, it's still the New York of its time. It's a big financial market, but it was the biggest one in the world then. And uh, some of them got into trouble in recessions and with commodity price swings and defaulted on their debt. And lo and behold, it was sort of like Argentina now. They, they had trouble borrowing for a while. After a while, though, they, you know, after a while, they sort of got it together, and a lot of them repaid their debt and then went back to capital markets. Um, so you might look back to that as a model. Now, the law surrounding debt default is, is, um, you know, has changed significantly since then. So how it plays out might be different. I think there are substantial risks um, to state and local governments going forward. Um, I talk a lot about the federal deficit and the overhang we have of, I'm sure you're familiar with this, of uh, uh, spending on Medicare and, and Social Security, but local uh, pensions 
uh, state and local pension obligations are a huge hidden overhang that doesn't get nearly the attention that the federal deficit does but deserves it and could well cause uh, substantial uh, disruption uh, in the years in the, in the in the decades ahead so a very worthy topic did you have a specific question about it I see so you're asking whether it was a threat or a menace so, okay. good yes Ah, good question. So um, there's no question that sometime, um, you know, over some certain horizon, uh, interest rates are going to rise. And I refer both to short-term interest rates that we control, the policy interest rates we control, the federal funds rate, and now we have this other tool, the interest rate on excess reserves that we pay to bankers who are holding reserves with us. Um, there's no question that that has to rise. Um, the question is when and how rapidly um, that judgment is a difficult one to make. Um, you know, I don't think it's this month uh, is the time, but, um, you know, I, I'm looking with increasing, um, uh, you know, with increasing intention at uh, the economic data coming in to try and assess when to, when we should make a turn and increase rates. Um, so we've, we've had experience in the past with uh, ra- sort of rapid, rate increases and more gradual rate increases. Um, We cut rates pretty aggressively on the way down. Um, I think we need to be, I think one lesson I take away from the episode of 2003, 4, and 5, in hindsight, I think um, you you could make a case for a more rapid rate of increase and an earlier initiation of the rate of increase in rates then. I think we need to be flexible. I think we need, when we start raising rates, not to tie ourselves to a particular rate, but, um, you know, to to get people used to the idea that, you know, we may go a little faster at times, maybe a little slower at times. That's how we cut rates after all. Um, So I I think the the, the options are wide open to us there. How that would affect the dollar, I think, is going to depend a lot on just the relative strength of our economy and the other industrialized economies as well. So uh, that's going to be hard to predict. Um, We... We set interest rate policy focused on domestic inflation, though. At least that's how I think of it. Um, And so that's going to be our primary focus. The value of the dollar is going to fall out of a a broad constellation of of forces that influence the relative value of different currencies. Let me ask a follow-up. Okay. Well, um, that's a good question. The question is, um, uh, Chairman Greenspan, previous chairman of the Federal Reserve, was fond of looking at particular uh, uh, sort of offbeat uh, economic uh, statistics, uh, like uh, the example cited here was bolts uh, coming out of a certain factory that were probably essential for some certain machine tool. That, so it was a leading indicator of 
machine tools maybe that were leading indicator of something else. So there's a lot of things you can cite like that that were important in some particular episode in the past. Problem is, with a shifting structure of an economy, and this is exactly the, the thing you're bringing up with the shift to the service sector, you never know what's, how it's going to look because each recovery, just like each recession is different, each recovery is a little different. So, for example, in the past, um, we looked at housing was always uh, something – fell sharply in recession, came back sharply. This recession was essentially caused by a humongous overbuilding of housing. So I don't think we should look for housing to be – first of all, it shouldn't it's, – it's unlikely to bounce back rapidly. I'm not even sure it's going to make positive contributions to GDP growth on average over the next year or two. Um, but I think that we should view that as fine given the overbuilding. I think we should look elsewhere. Um, where I see growth emerging now is um, business spending on equipment and software. And if you talk to a lot of businesses, they've made a lot of IT investments over the last two decades with the tech boom and all this has enabled them to do. There are huge opportunities to rationalize their IT infrastructure. And that does two things. It squeezes out costs for them. But often by doing that, you can redesign your business process around the infrastructure you want and redesign your infrastructure around the business process you want and achieve um, you know, real tremendous gains in productivity. And I think there's a steady diet of that. There, people are going to be uh, – businesses are going to be digesting over the next several years. And we see it even within the Federal Reserve System. We spend a billion a year on IT and we're looking constantly and we have constant programs of, of refreshing our, our infrastructure. So I think that's going to be kind of the main thing besides consumer spending driving growth in this recovery. Now, um, about the data, I, I don't think Chairman Greenspan – I mean, I've, I've worked with him. I overlapped with him a couple years. I don't think he ever looked exclusively at one statistic. What he was known for was looking – at an incredible number of things, he never put every he never placed a bet on just one number. Um, so um, yes, we look at everything as well. And if you've got some ideas, give me an email. No, no, no. Other questions down here in front. Um, so bank lending has been in the spotlight uh, for quite some time. Um, bank lending uh, varies over the business cycle for reasons that are very understandable. Um, nobody is as creditworthy now as they were three years ago, even if their balance sheet hasn't changed, their revenues haven't changed, their costs haven't changed, because the economic environment everybody works in now is, is more uncertain uh, and more problematic in many cases than than three years ago. So it's understandable to me why we'd why you would see credit standards tighten in a downturn and then gradually re relax as economic conditions uh, improve and that uncertainty dissipates. Um, so that to me, you know, provides some rationale for having seen bank lending fall. If you talk to bankers, um, they'll tell you they are chasing every. Uh, creditworthy customer they can find, um, and they'd love to lend to them because they're going to make more than one, you know, uh, a quarter of a percent on on reserves. Um, you know, the rates you can get on loans are, you know, in the mid single digits, and so it's if they can find someone who's creditworthy, it's a profitable endeavor, no doubt about it. Um, having said that, a lot of businesses have been 
on a steady program for the last two years of paring down debt. Um, and this is going on the consumer side as well. Consumer credit numbers falling, uh, business lending numbers falling. A lot of it has to do with businesses not wanting to borrow. They're hunkering down. They want to reduce their debt, um, get their ratios back in line, um, get themselves ready for an expansion when it's there. And a lot of businesses are sitting on the sidelines with regard to investment outlays because they don't, um, they're not confident yet um, about the environment they're going to be in. They're waiting. They're seeing things firm up. Um, some firms are, are making outlays. Some firms are, are taking risks. You see a slow expansion of those cases. But there's, there are a lot of firms that are uncertain about the regulatory environment they're going to face. Until recently, healthcare was a big wild card. People were telling us they didn't know if they should hire someone because they don't know what it's going to cost in healthcare for them to make a commitment to hire someone. Same thing with the capital outlay. If you don't know the regulatory environment or the in environmental in West Virginia, the uncertainty about the environmental regime is tremendous. Uh, given what the EPA's done, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about just what, um, you know, what environment, what environmental uh, package of environmental regulations we're going to have, and that's stymieing. You know, no matter what you think about the environmental issues, either side, um, that's um, that's depressing investment. People are waiting to see just what the rules of the game are. Same thing with uh, sort of the value of carbon emissions, right? What's the price going to be? Is it going to be worth $5? Is it going to be worth 10 15 So a lot of investments are kind of waiting. Right? So that's that's my that's kind of my perspective on bank lending, and I, I think it will pick up when the demand is there. Um, do you think the banking industry will go back to being more uh, heavily regulated, um, or do you think there are some other ways that you guys will try to utilize to avoid uh, another potential financial crisis? Um, I, I think that – um, I think that regulations are stepping up. Regulations have evolved over the years, um, and there, there was never any real sense in which we completely deregulated or anything close to that. But there, there were shifts in bank activities and shifts in our regulatory approach to them uh, that, in hindsight, um, you know, that could benefit from hindsight, could have benefited from hindsight, the hindsight we have now. And we're we're strengthening those, you know, we're covering those gaps and strengthening those holes. Um, and yes, there is going to be tighter regulation on uh, the banking industry. Any substantial institution that has a, a banking charter, uh, deposit-taking charter, is going to get tighter regulation. And they're, they're facing that already. Um, we've seen this in the Consumer Protection Agency with tougher disclosure requirements um, on credit cards and, and restrictions on repricing of credit cards and other practices uh, to try and eliminate some of the abusive um, practices that we saw. Um, and uh, we've seen this on um, uh, the way we uh, scrutinize the liquidity management, and that just means sort of how much of a liquid buffer banks have and other financial institutions have on hand to withstand, you know, this run behavior. So um, banks are holding huge amounts of liquidity that they didn't used to. used to get by on a thinner, much thinner margin of liquidity. So liquidity management has shifted tremendously given the risks to liquidity management, the run risk that we saw back in uh, 2008. Um, and um, capital, we're going to approach capital planning uh, much differently now in a much more forward-looking direction than we did before. Good question. Over here.
So um, the TARP money was uh, this is about how much TARP cost us. So it was, it was an authorized 700 billion. Um, a bunch of money was put into banking institutions as capital investment with warrants uh, so to get upside gain in the equity. A bunch of money was put into General Motors and Chrysler, um, and uh, there were some other little investments as well. So the banking industry as a whole is going to make money by the boatload for uh, the U.S. government and the U.S. taxpayer uh, because the rate of return that those banks paid on that capital plus the value of the warrants, you know, in, exceeds by a wide margin the rate of return that the Treasury was paying on the extra debt they had to issue, uh, to, which is the fair way to compare it, uh, to, to fund that. Now, a couple of banks, there have been a couple losses, but overall it's, it's totally made money on the banking side. Chrysler and General Motors are another Another question. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was um, it was more than I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. Yeah. So yeah, the the TARP money for the banks has been is is being re repaid, and a lot of it has been repaid. Uh, and that part's going to make money. The part where the taxpayers are going to lose money is General Motors and Chrysler. One more? Uh, you said earlier that it's almost impossible to predict future economic conditions. You have to plan monetary policies predicting what actions today will help us tomorrow. So how does the Fed make decisions with confidence better than what free market will produce for short-term interest rates? Can I have a blackboard? It's not impossible to, pick, to predict the economy. Uh, it's just impossible to predict it perfectly. It's impossible to eliminate that last smidgen of uncertainty. Um, so there's all, you know, you forecast, there's always some uncertainty. I mean, think about forecasting the temperature tomorrow. You have some idea, but you're not sure. So it's about like that. Um, I think we've made a lot of strides, but there's, there's an inherent unpredictability in economic systems because if you there's some things that if you could predict it you would take actions today that would prevent it from coming true so there's a certain amount of that going on so the broader deeper question so there's there's two sides to your question one is um, one has to do with interest rates um, and the other has to do with sort of relative expertise right so we we control the interest rate on our liabilities. It's just true, right? I mean, so we have a monopoly on certain liabilities, so it's supply and demand, right? We have a monopoly. We can change the supply till we get the price where we want it to be. So um, now we don't know what we're going to want it to be two years from now. The private sector is trying to predict that. We'd like to predict it too. We'd like to try and help the private sector predict that too. We'd like them to understand how it's going to vary with future economic conditions. So that's kind of the dynamic we're in. And our short-term interest rate influences a range of other rates via the standard sort of theory of the yield curve, that you know a two-year rate should be about the same as the average of what people expect one-year rates to be from now to then, and, vice, you know, and one year down to 
six months and all the way down to overnight rates. So that relationship bought a hold. Um, whether we're better than the private sector at predicting our own future behavior or not, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, and I'm not sure it should dissuade us, you know, if, if the market can predict a little better um, because we're both responding to incoming economic events about which our information is imperfect and the private sector's information is imperfect. So there you go. Thank you very much. You've been a delightful audience.